0: Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the Lord's day. We've gathered on the first day of the week to celebrate you, to worship you, to partake of communion, to study your word. And Father, just to envelop ourselves, Father, in your truth, in your grace, in your power. So Lord, let us sink in deep today. For each and every heart that's here, from, from the youngest to the oldest, Fill our hearts with your joy, for it's in Jesus is awesome. Amen, powerful, victorious name. We pray. All God's people said, "Amen." amen. You may have a seat. Amen, amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter sixteen, and I'm going to read the first uh, six or seven verses. But in our verse by verse study, we'll go all the way to verse thirty. Matthew chapter nineteen, verse sixteen. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which one? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. As we study it now, we dive into this passage. Open our hearts. First in Jesus' awesome name, I pray, Amen, Amen. So this morning's text, Matthew chapter six, uh, 19, verses sixteen through thirty, is a fascinating passage. You could take it from multiple different angles. This is a passage on evangelism. This is a passage on taking someone through the law before you give them the gospel, because that's what Jesus does here, you know. But this is also a passage uh, for for believers to um, be careful. Do not let greed and material wealth take over in your life. Uh, In in the words of one of my good friends, always do this. Keep Christ first. There's nothing wrong with wealth, but keep it. Don't let let, let it—you can have wealth, but don't let wealth have you. Amen? So this is an amazing passage. So I was—in my preparation for my teaching this week, I was reading an article on Campus Crusade for Christ— And they listed the top three questions that college students have for God. In other words, if if they could stand before God humbly and ask him an honest and sincere question, what would that question be? I want to give you the top three questions. And the third one ties straight into our teaching this morning. The first question they would ask is, why is there suffering and evil in the world? And that's a good question. You know, why do... Why do we see so much evil? Why do we see so much suffering? It can be hard to get our minds wrapped around that as Christians. Why is that? But we're not going to dive into that subject today because that's a, a whole another eight-week study. Uh, the second question is that they, they would ask is, what do I do with my life? That's the question that young people want to ask is, God, what, what do I do with my life? And then finally, the most important question, according to Campus Crusade for Christ um, website, the top question is, how can I know that I will go to heaven when I die? And friends and family, whether you're a believer or not, that is the absolute most important question that you could ask in this life. Again, I'm hoping, believing from 90 to 100. You know, I doubt I'll get there, but I'm hoping for it anyway. But even if I get that much, that's just a speck compared to eternity. So there's nothing more important than our eternal salvation. Let's take a look at verse 16. Remember, the, the, the big question college students had was, how can I know that I'll go to heaven when I die? Look at verse 16. Has, 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 things have not changed. We're, we're looking up at the same blue sky that they looked up at in the first century. Verse 16 says, Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That's the question that this rich young ruler um, has for the Lord Jesus. Very important question. You know, uh, here Jesus encounters a very unique man. According to verse 20 of this chapter, he is young. According to verse 22 of this chapter, he is rich. And there at verse 16, we see that he is a spiritually minded person. And he here in this text, he asked the single greatest question that anybody could ask of God. And what we need to understand here today 2,000 years later, is the rich young ruler as a picture of many people today. The rich young ruler, he's he's that perfect neighbor living next door to us. He is that boss at work who appears to have it all together. He is respected in the community. This rich young ruler is representative of even a family man. Someone that's welcomed in the church. In some churches, he's part of leadership. He's welcome. People like him. But the problem is, he has not been born again. There are a lot of good people in this world who do good things, in our sight anyway, in our eyes anyway, but they are not born again. He, along with them, they believe they will go to heaven when they die because they are a good person. And friends, that is not true. That's just not true, as I'm going to show you in our text this morning. Let's continue. So we asked this question, what good thing may, may I do to inherit eternal life? He asked the biggest question of all. Look at verse 17. So he, talking about Jesus, said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So the first thing Jesus does in this conversation with a rich young ruler is he corrects the man's understanding of what good is. Okay, Jesus is not questioning his goodness as God. Rather, he's the, the man's definition of what good means. That's what he's getting down to, what this man understands as being good. You see, man's definition of, of being good is, is living the American dream. That's the definition today of, of, of a good life. It's living the American dream. It's someone that works hard, someone that uh, provides for their family, someone that pays their taxes. But friends, that is not good in God's eyes. That's not the definition of good in God's eyes. God's definition of good, and what we need to understand is this, is is good is moral perfection. Moral perfection is being without sin. It is reflecting God's nature of, of, of holiness, That's why none of us are good, because all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And by God's definition and standard of good, the Bible says there is no one good, no, not one. Let's continue halfway through verse 17. Halfway through verse 17, Jesus says, But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And look at what Jesus does. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I question this, the honesty of this answer. But anyway, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now, I don't know about you, but if, I'm, if I know the gospel and I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, And I know the good news, why does Jesus take him through the Ten Commandments in verse 18? Those quotes in verse 18, each one of those comes directly from the Ten Commandments. Why didn't he just explain the cross? Why didn't he just say, hey, in a little while I'm going to die on the cross and you just need to believe and trust in me? Jesus takes him through the law to show him his sin and to show him his need for salvation. What he's doing is the greatest gift for this rich young ruler. What he's doing is he is preparing his heart for grace. Okay? you got to understand the bad news before you understand the good news. Without the understanding the bad news, the good news is not truly good news. And we need to understand both. Let's continue verse 21 Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. So after the rich young ruler says, hey, I've kept the first five, Jesus points him to the essence of the first and the second commandment, which is you shall have no other God before me, and you shall not bow down to any graven image. What was the man's God? It was his material wealth. It was his possessions. And notice in verse 21, if you notice in verse 21, this whole passage right here, Jesus did not give the invitation to come and follow him until after he explained to the rich young ruler his violation of God's law. You see, we need to understand God's moral law, talking about the Ten Commandments, it is beautiful. It is glorious. Why is God's moral law beautiful and glorious? Because it reflects the holy nature of God, okay? It reflects God's holy nature. And what it does is it points us, after it shows us our sin, it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the law does. God's moral law is beautiful because it shows us we are not good in God's eyes. We are sinners in need of grace. That is the purpose of God's moral law. Contrary to popular opinion today, no one is morally good on this earth, including you, including me, and including the the mailman. No one is. Romans chapter 3, verse 12 says, For all have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. And look at it. You know, People want to argue about this, What is about no, be, being no good person. Look at the end of Romans 3.12. No one who does good, not even one. Why? Because we're sinners in need of grace. We're in need of the gospel. And we've got to understand that. So let's, let's, let's pause here for a minute, and let's talk about the purpose of God's law. What is the purpose of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments? Many people will say, well, there're moral boundaries given to society to tell them what's right and wrong." I agree with that definition. I think there's a better biblical definition, but I agree with that people saying that. But there's a more accurate biblical uh, purpose for God's Ten Commandments. Listen to Galatians 3:24. Galatians 3:24 says, "Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster." You'll find this in the King James Version was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is the schoolmaster. It just shows us our guilt. It shows us how we've broken God's moral law. And then the law says, go to Jesus and you'll find forgiveness. You know, people get caught up in legalism and trying to live moral lives, thinking they're gonna be good in God's eyes. That ain't happening. Because if you broke one, you broke them all. If you broke it once, you're, you're a sinner. And there's no reverse in that. But the law is beautiful and glorious because it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. More specifically, man, this, this next verse nails it down. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, For we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Did you see that? The law is not made for who? It's not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners. Now, we don't go around with the law beating people over the head with it and condemning them. But what we do is we lovingly, kindly, gently go around explaining to people, this: hey, this is why Jesus died on the cross. Because God has a moral law and we've broken his law. We've lied, we've stolen, we've blasphemed, we've used God's name in vain, We've broken his commandments. But by the way, God did something so we could be forgiven of breaking his law. He sent his son, Jesus. At the appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, suffered and died on the cross for our sins. That's the purpose of the moral law of God. In the Old Testament, you had the Abrahamic promise given in, there in Genesis chapter 12. And then the law was added to show people, their need for a savior, to show people their need for God. It was never meant or put in place as, to be, as, as, a, as a mechanism of salvation, as a mechanism of this is how to be saved, obey God's law. You can't because we've all broken it. It was meant to, as a schoolmaster to show us our need for grace. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says this, Sin is transgression of the law. The law prepares our hearts for grace. and a matter of fact, the law is our greatest tool in evangelism. It's our greatest tool in evangelism in explaining why Jesus died on the cross. It is the bad news of the law that makes the gospel good news. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I quote. He said, This you lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say, You have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary, its most powerful weapon. When you have set aside the law, you have taken away from it the schoolmaster that brings men to Christ. They will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves as a most necessary purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. You know, so this whole thing of law and legalism, we need to throw that legalism out. And we need to see God's moral law as the New Testament describes it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. It's a schoolmaster. It's a schoolmaster that, that shows us our guilt and says, hey, Go to the cross, and you'll find forgiveness for all your sin. The moral law points us, it's, I, I, I was supposed to say it points its finger at us, but actually it points its ten fingers at us. It shows us our guilt. It says, now run to the Savior. Find mercy in Christ. Find grace in Christ. Find the love of Christ. Find healing for your soul. Find forgiveness. Find healing for your mind find salvation in Christ. That is the purpose of God's law. And I believe that's what Jesus is getting to here in our passage here in Matthew chapter 19. Let's continue, verse 22 of Matthew chapter 19. This is a tragic verse. I wish this, I wish this, I wish it didn't happen this way, but it, it does, it happens this way. Um, but when the young man, verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Oh, man. He walks away. Jesus doesn't chase him down, say, hey, come over to my house later on. You know, let's have, you know, let's talk about evangelism. He, he walks away sad. Why does he walk away sad? Because he has a proud heart. He has a resistant heart. He does, he, he does not want to leave context he does not want to leave his material possessions to follow Christ. That's why he walks away sad. Friends and family, there is nothing in this world that compares with Christ. Nothing. I don't care how much money you have in your checking account. I don't care how big a house or, or, or stocks and bonds or whatever material possessions you have. Nothing compares with the value of of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater purpose in this life. There is no greater thing in this life than valuing and treasuring Christ. And what we have here is the great tragedy of humanity. The world, the world likes Jesus, okay? The the world likes Jesus. They admire Jesus. Many people that don't follow Jesus, they want to follow Jesus. But what holds them back? The same thing that held this rich young ruler. They heard the word they did not like that stung their ears, and that word was repent. And when they heard that word, they did, he didn't like it, and the world doesn't like it. The idea of turning from their sin is too high a price to pay in their mind. They esteem their sin more than the sacrifice of Jesus. So what do they do? Sadly, tragically, it breaks our hearts, they walk away from Christ. That is the tragedy, that is the tragedy that just causes our hearts as believers to ache. When we want our friends, we want our family, we want people to know the love of Christ. We want them to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the things of this world take a higher priority in Christ what they are truly looking for is this they're, they're looking for a Christianity without a cross they're looking for a Christianity without a sacrifice they're looking for a Christianity without repentance they're looking for a Christianity without a conversion Jesus said we must repent turn away from the world doesn't mean you live a life of perfection doesn't mean you have it completely altogether." together doesn't mean that God's got to work in your life and grace and sanctification and growth, but we leave the old life and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin has a deceptive death grip on humanity. It has a deceptive death grip on humanity. And what we have to do is we have to break through lovingly, kindly, gently with the grace and the love of God and God's moral law. God's moral law to show them, to help the, help the, sometimes, sometimes we just need to l- help our friends cause the dots to connect in their mind so they can understand, well, why did Jesus die? Oh, that was a great, that was a great uh, sacrifice. That was a great way to show love. That was a great way to show humility. Now, those things can be true. He did show humility and show love, but that wasn't the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason was to pay the price for our sin. So we need to show people that and pray fervently that they see that awesome, beautiful, glorious truth. Let's continue. Verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So now Jesus, the doctor, is opening up the man's heart before us, and he's revealing the real situation of what's going on inside the man because he he doesn't want to follow Christ. It's hard uh, he says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's hard because our desire for more and more comes natural. Okay, yeah, we're going to play a game. It's called Name That Tune. All right, we, Name That Tune. This was one of Pastor David's favorite songs in 1989. All right, first let's show a picture. I had to block out the name of the song. Anybody recognize this song? 1989. This was one. Of, this was one of Pastor David's favorite songs in 1989, the year I graduated from high school. And this group, so nobody knows it yet. Uh, I'm gonna read to you the lyrics. It's a uh, listen, all you people, come gather round. I gotta get me a game plan. I gotta shake you to the ground. But just give me up uh, what I know is mine. And here I'm gonna read the chorus, and everybody's going, Oh yeah, I remember that song. And he goes, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. Do y'all remember that song? That's the theme song of humanity. That was my theme song for 20 years. I lived life because I wanted it all. I wanted everything just the way I wanted it in life. And that was one of the reasons that kept me from coming to Christ in those early years, is because I heard the word repent. I was like, ooh, don't like that word. I'm not leaving what I like. But this is at the heart of every human being is we have a desire for material possessions. We have a desire for material wealth. How do we suppress that? How do we put it down? I know every single one of you guys in here have struggled. You might be struggling with it right now, but at some point in your life, you've had that just insatiable greed, lust for more and more and more, how do we, how do we deal with that in our hearts? we got to go to the Word of God. we got to go to God's Word and hear Jesus' words and take heed to Jesus' words. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, let me say this. Don't go sell everything you have, whatever you do have. There's nothing wrong with having wealth, okay? But just don't let it control you. Be a good steward of your wealth. But we have to guard our hearts and make sure that Christ is first. Is Christ first in your life? There's so many things competing in our world. There's so many things competing in your life for your allegiance, whether it's job or hobbies or wealth or fame or fortune and then there's Christ who is first who is first Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be taken care of we have to get to a point where we seek Christ first where we make him number one in our life amen let's continue verse 24 He says, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A camel was the largest land animal in Israel. A needle is the smallest, narrowest object in the Jewish mind. Can you imagine an animal going through the eye of a needle? It is a scientific impossibility. And what he's saying here is it's difficult for a rich man to be saved because when he or she comes to Christ, even their wealth must take a back seat to the Lord Jesus Christ, or else it is idolatry. Christ has to be first. So how do we guard our hearts? Okay? This, this, I'm, 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 I'm preaching to you, but I'm also preaching to myself. How do we, as believers in Jesus, how do we guard our hearts from the pursuit of wealth and material possession and placing that above Christ. Number one, find your treasure in Christ. The more you understand the gospel, the more, that you, the more you understand the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross, the more you understand his resurrection from the dead and how he's given you new life and he's forgiven you of all your sins, the more you study it and treasure it, the greater your heart will be drawn to Christ, okay? So there's no substitute for spending time in his word and asking the Holy Spirit to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, as the scripture says, so that we may know him more intimately. That's how we guard our hearts from uh, uh, making an idol of wealth. We ask the Holy Spirit to guard our hearts. And then we always, we just make it a point in life, make it a point in our everyday walk. I'm going to wake up in the morning and say, I am going to place Christ first. And it's a discipline. It's, a, it's just something that, that you just say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to crucify my flesh, and I'm going to place Christ first. Let's continue. Verse 25. He says, And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, look at this, verse 25, who then can be saved? They're seeing the big picture. The disciples at this point in the text, they're seeing the big picture, the infinite value of following Christ and what it's going to cost them, okay? Believing in Christ is more than a mental ascent to truth. It's 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 a belief that... That, that surrenders it, it is a surrender to his truth it's saying uncle I bow my knee before you I believe you and I trust you when you become a Christian and you continue in discipleship you dethrone yourself and you place Christ first in anything that competes with allegiance to Christ we eradicate it through discipleship and through growth and through being in the Word, and through being in prayer. Now, before anybody says, wait, you're you're getting too far into works, you know, God has given us, we can't, let me say this, you can't do this on your own, okay? You need the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life for this change to take place. Look at the next verse, very important that Jesus includes this. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus here in verse 26, so important that this is written here, Jesus is speaking of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in converting our hearts. You know, it's the Spirit of the Lord working in our lives that causes this change. It's the Spirit of the Lord working in our hearts that gives us the desire to to do these things. It takes a miracle in our hearts for salvation, okay? It takes a miracle in our hearts to surrender. It takes a miracle in our hearts to place Christ first. Why am I where I am at today? Why do I I love him? Why do I follow him? You know, I, I can't take no credit. You can't take no credit. You are where you are today, because of the Holy Spirit. And all we can do as Christians is when we feel the Holy Spirit tugging on our hearts, pulling us in that direction, all we can do is say, "Uncle," and surrender," and say, "Lord, not my will done. not my will be done, but your will be done." And we say, "Yes, Lord." So it's very important that we understand that this is all driven the Holy Spirit in our life verse 27 then Peter answered and said to him see we have left all and followed you now I I love Peter's honesty here and sincerity the 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 New Testament authors they didn't make anything up man they just presented it just as it is written just as it was said and look at Peter's words therefore what shall we have you know this is a a sincere question What do we get in return? What do we get in return for this, Lord? That's what Jesus is asking. There is a reward for following Christ. Do you know that? There is a kingdom coming to this earth, okay? There's a kingdom coming to this earth, and it's gonna be led and put together by the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it the millennial reign of Christ. The next prophetic event is the rapture of the church, then the seven-year great tribulation, Then after the tribulation, God is going to set up his thousand-year millennial reign. And guess what, friends? We're going to see in the next couple of verses what I'm getting to right here, is <clears throat> you and I are going to get to rule and reign in his kingdom. There is a kingdom coming. There is a reward, as Peter's asking here. There's heaven. There's eternal life. And there's a world without sin and evil coming. The, I mean, the alternative is horrifying. The lake of fire weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who would want that? Not me. I want to be a part of this big reward, this kingdom that's coming to this world, the kingdom of God in his millennial reign and then throughout eternity. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, this is what he's talking about, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here... Verse 28, Jesus is making a promise to his disciples that they are going to rule and reign with him. But check this out, friends. They're not the only ones. Look at the next verse, the next two words of the next verse. And everyone, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wives, or children, or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So here Jesus is answering the the, the question, how to inherit eternal life? How do you inherit eternal life, friends? Follow Christ, believe in Christ, trust in Christ. He is the gateway to eternal life. You trust him, you obey him, and you make him your, your first allegiance, even above your own family, as the verse talks about Above your own family. And then verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Multiple ways I could close this message, but the way I've chose to close this message is going back to Jesus um, presenting him with the law and uh, helping him understand salvation. And I think about us today living in 2023. What our world needs today is to tremble before a just and holy law. And then, and only then, will they esteem the sacrifice of Christ. Again, we don't do it judgmentally. We don't hammer people over the head. But we lovingly, kindly say, hey, God's got a law. You've broken it. Here's what Jesus did so that you could be forgiven we have a video for you to watch.
1: So Mario, are you spiritual? Yes. What do you mean by that?
2: The way I grew up, my heart was in my neighborhood, but my love, I've always been loyal to love, I've always known that, but it deceived me. I confused the two. If you confuse the two, it lets you down. You have to pick yourself up, yourself up. You can't let anybody else pick yourself up.
1: Is that why you mean by spiritual? Self-improvement or talking about God?
2: Self-improvement. That's what I believe in. I believe in all religions have a universal meaning. I believe in the power of the universe. I believe that we're all just human and we're all here to spread love and that's all I got to (laughs) do.
1: So, do you think God created everything? Do you think evolution created everything? We can never know, ever. <laughs> oh, you may not be able to know. I know. You can know within. You hear that, Mario? I know. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you Can't say we can never know. That's limiting your knowledge. Um, do you ever think about how amazing life is? I mean, look at the I blueness think. of the sky and the sun. You ever think about the sun? How incredible it is! How incredible it is! It's ninety-three million miles away. And it's just warm enough to me your tomatoes. Any closer, we're all dead. Further away, we're all dead. You ever think about how amazing that is? I do. So how did it get there?
2: I had to learn it myself. I had to go within. And nobody can teach it for you. You have to go within. And you can unlock the secrets to the universe if your loyalty lies in the love for yourself. That's it.
1: You love yourself? I do. You love God?
2: I love God. But in my mind, God is... The
1: entire universe. So I well, love that, the entire. It's called pantheism. The difference between the painter and the painting. You don't love the painting; you love the painter because he's the genius that created the painting. And so, if you love creation, you're setting your affection on the creation rather than the creator, and that's called inordinate affection. It's a wrong order of affections. If your mum gave you a gift and you love the gift more than you love your mother, there's something wrong. You should be saying, "Hey, mum, thanks for this car. I'm grateful to you, not to the car." grateful to you for the gift. Makes sense? I
2: personally know who I am and why I'm here. I found my purpose from within. I know that to be true. I've never lost that in my entire life. I've been the same person. You need love. You can't be a man without love. You have to separate yourself from love in order to find that for yourself. Nobody else can do it for you. That's the point.
1: Do you trust yourself? I do. How many, let me ask you a question. Spell the word shop. S-H-O-P. What do you do when you come to a green light? G-O. Good work. <laughs> Spell the word silk. S-I-L-K. What do cows drink? M-I-L-K. No, they drink water. <laughs> so never trust yourself. Because we are easily deceived. The Bible says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. A lot of people are dead because they trusted their own heart. They made judgments. I can beat that truck and overtake this car, and they couldn't. Wrong judgment. Let me ask you another question. You said your concept of God is that he is the universe. Yeah. Do you think God is happy with you or angry at you? Depending on what you do, God will
2: love you for it either way. <laughs> That's what I believe in.
1: How are you doing morally? Are as you, long as you stay
2: true to yourself, God will love you. It doesn't matter what you do, as long as you know in your heart you're doing it for the right reason, love. You have nothing to worry about in this world whatsoever. It's called faith.
1: Let's see how you're doing. Do you think you're a good person? Yes. How many lies have you told in your life?
2: I've lost count.
1: Okay. What well, do you call someone who's told lies? A liar. So you've blown that one. Have you ever stolen something, even if, you're, even if it's small? Yeah you called? Someone who steals?
2: A liar. A thief. <laughs> if you deny that you lie, steal, cheat, and deceit, you become those things. And that's what you have to understand as a human, is that you can't lose yourself in yourself because that's the double-edged sword of love. It's out there. You just got to find it for yourself in order to truly know what it is, and I just want to push that to everybody. <laughs> that's okay, Mara, my... You were saying that you found yourself.
1: What are mankind's origins? Where do we come from? Women. <laughs> yeah, but I mean originally, I don't mean from your mother, I mean where did, what's, what's the origin of humanity?
2: Authenticity and love.
1: Oh, the origin, where did we come from? What was in the beginning?
2: Man and woman. <laughs>
1: yeah, but for man and woman, who created man and woman? A higher power. Uh, who was that? God. <laughs> okay. Why do we exist as human beings? To love. Okay, and where are you, where are you going when you die?
2: Whatever you did here, it depends. <laughs> okay,
1: that's true. Now, third commandment, you should not take God's name in vain. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Okay, would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? Never. Never, because you honor her, but you haven't loved and honored God. You've used His name as a filth word to express disgust, which is called blasphemy, it's so serious. It's punishable by death in the Old Testament. Appreciate your honesty. And your, uh, and your patience with me. Now Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust?
2: Yes, I'm a man. <laughs> have
1: you had sex before marriage? Yes, I'm a man. So Mario, I'm not judging you. You judge yourself. But you've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterer at heart. And you have to face God on judgment day. If he judges you by the ten commandments, of have looked at four, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Guilty. Heaven or hell
2: hell. Now,
1: <laughs> does that concern you?
2: Deep down, yeah.
1: And it horrifies me. We've just met. I love you. I care about you. The thought of you going to hell just breaks my heart. Do you know what death actually is, according to the
2: Bible? Ultimate enlightenment.
1: Well, no, it's wages. It says the wages of sin is death. God's given you death as wages for your sin. He's paying you in death. He's given you capital punishment. Like a judge looks at a heinous criminal who's raped three girls and then murdered them. He says, you've earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. And sin is so serious to God, Mario, that he's given you capital punishment, lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterate heart. Now tell me, what did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Do you remember?
2: He came up with the idea that depending on what you do here, You're either good or bad, and that's it. You just got to stick to that and have the faith in that.
1: No, that's not what he did. Jesus suffered and died on the cross for the sin of the world. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. Mario, if you're in court and someone pays your fine, a judge can let you go. Did you know that? You can say, Mario, there's a stack of speeding fines here. This is deadly serious. But someone's paid him you're free to go and he can do that which is legal and right and just and God loves you so much he became a human being suffered and died on the cross to take the punishment for the sin of the world that means you don't have to end up in hell God can legally forgive your sins because he's the lover of your soul and then Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death Mario if you give up the battle and just say God I'm a rebel and you repent and trust in Christ God will forgive every sin you've ever committed and grant you everlasting life as a free gift do you believe what I'm saying? Yes. It's the gospel truth. I wouldn't lie to you. Are you ready to repent and trust in Christ? Yes. Can I pray with you? <laughs> sure. Father, I pray for Mario. Thank you we met today. Thank you we met today. I pray today he'll truly repent and trust in Jesus and have his sins forgiven in a second and pass from death to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? No. I'm, I'm going to give you some literature. Uh, do you know why you're, you're weeping? Any idea?
2: Because I've sinned <laughs> as a man. <laughs>
1: okay. That's called contrition. And the Bible says godly sorrow, being sorry for your sins, works repentance. So I trust today that God's brought conviction of sin to you and that you know you've sinned against God and you'll understand that God can forgive you and grant you everlasting life as a free gift. I've got some literature for you. Okay, Mario, thank you for talking to me. I really appreciate it.
2: I appreciate you <laughs> interviewing me. I do. A
1: mm-hmm. friend.
0: That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That God has a law. We've broken it. And Jesus paid the price. Our response. As we say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, friend, you can settle the question once and for all. Done. It is finished. There's no more doubt. There's no more thoughts when you're laying your head on your pillow at night and you're thinking about God and eternity. As you embrace, the love and the grace of God displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what God calls us to, to let God's law as drive us to Jesus and find forgiveness of sin. 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's not about being religious. is as important as church is, and it's very important to go to church. It's not about going to church. It's about you surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope and pray. Me and the elders are talking about this fall doing a a Way of the Master evangelism course. Hopefully, we'll see how that goes. But I hope that this is um, giving you some tools to reach out to your friends and your loved ones and sharing the gospel. Notice how Ray did it. He wasn't judgmental, he didn't hammer the guy. He just very lovingly, kindly shared with him the law. And it brought that young man to his knees on the inside of seeing this beautiful, glorious gospel. So application, you and I put our trust in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. And with the world, explain to them why Jesus died. Connect the dots so they can understand. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we have eternal life in you. In you, Lord Jesus. Not not that eternal life starts with us, but it's it's with you. It's by our faith and trust in you. You are eternal life. And Lord, help us all just to love you, praise you, and consider all the material wealth of this world as nothing Compared to the great value of knowing you as our Lord and Savior. And Father, as we saw, we saw, Lord Jesus, how you took this rich young ruler through the law, even though he walked away, it gave him a lot to think about. Help us, Lord, to give our friends a lot to think about. And help, help us to help our friends see the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we love you and praise you. Seal this word in our hearts. Seal this word by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning, we pray. Let it be real. We thank you, Lord.